What's the Rumpus about Networks 2021? What's the Rumpus? I'm Asaf Shapira and this is Netflix, the Network Science Podcast. New Agers have Burning Man, Geeks have Comic Con, and Network Science Enthusiasts have the Networks 2021 Conference. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Anne McCraney, the general organizer of the conference, to learn what's so special about it and how to make the most out of it. We've managed to get her spill the beans about soon-to-be-announced plenary talks, and though she's impartial as chief organizer, she admitted to having a favorite presentation title, so care to guess what it is? In addition, to give us a taste of what's coming, we interviewed Professor Baruch Barzel, a renowned complex system researcher, to talk about his nine, yes, nine presentations in the conference. But as Netflix fans know, we judge by quality, not quantity. And luckily for us, Professor Barzel has them both. He'll unfold to us the super interesting tale of his ongoing crusade to find universality in network dynamics. And, like every good story, it will have some twists and turns and some surprising findings, including real-world application on Facebook. No spoilers. To shed more light on the conference, we brought out the big guns. So, here with us is Dr. Anne McCraney, the general organizer of the conference and associate director of the Indiana University Network Science Institute. So, Anne, what's the rumpus? Oh, yes. Well, thank you for having me. We are getting into the final countdown for the conference. This conference is unique because for the first time it brings together two network societies that come from different disciplines. The Sunbelt Conference, which is the annual conference of the International Network for Social Network Analysis, and then the um, NetSci Conference, which is the Network Science Society's annual summer conference, two are um, two of the largest societies, and they have different histories. So the International Network for uh, Social Network Analysis has been around for quite a while. I think it's over 40 years old. And it has its history in social network analysis and particularly the social sciences. But lots of people from that community come from health or organizational studies. So they call it the Sunbelt meeting because many years ago, the uh, organizers wanted to get out of the winter and they wanted to go somewhere warm. So usually they were held in the spring in either Tampa or San Diego. And eventually they started branching out and holding them internationally. The Sunbelt has its own tradition of being developmental in, in context. So they accept a lot of abstracts and they recognize that people may be bringing work in progress to the conference. NetSci has been grown over the years. It was founded in um, 2006. Actually, um, Bloomington was the first iteration of NetSci here in Indiana. The folks who come to that are coming from physics or informatics, neurosciences. We have a large neuroscience group. You'll see a lot of overlap with complex um, systems as well. So those are the big differences, I think. So first, Anne will take us through the pre-conference events. Our first activities will start on June the 21st, which is the kickoff of the two pre-conference weeks, which will feature about 43 satellites and workshops. Network Science Society has satellites, which are meetings that are planned around specific topics, usually half a day or a day long. Um, and the organizers really control the entire agenda. And the workshops are a tradition of Sunbelt. People actually teach you know, workshops for half a day or a full day. Or, and those have a long history within the Sunbelt community. And emphasize the differences between the two societies. And indeed, this is also reflected in the data. In this case, Hendrik Shaw, a.k.a. Random Graphs, built a Twitter network of the followers of the Network's 2021 conference. After applying community detection on this network, 
we can identify an SNA community, probably of INSNA members, and another community of probably NETSI members, and yet another community that seems to be related to Northeastern University. I asked Anne about it. Yes. So Northeastern, I think, is kind of in between, um, really, I think, as I recall from seeing the image. Yes. So my own institute, the Indiana University Network Science Institute, was founded in part to sort of be a interdisciplinary institute that brought groups together. We're not alone. We actually shared DNA with the Northeastern NETSI Institute as well, in that we think of networks as a big collective research project. The whole idea behind trying to have a joint conference, which actually is, I think at this point, almost six years old um, in terms of you know us, try, us working to make it happen. The first people we asked to join us in this um, venture were the folks from Northeastern. So Alessandra Vesmignani is on our steering committee, as is Kate Caranja is there. We knew that we shared a similar vision in terms of getting these communities together so I did, I did see the image that um, somebody had posted. I knew as soon as I put the full list of authors up on the spreadsheet that someone was going to get clever enough to do that. It was really interesting to see it. What I'm interested in and what I hope this conference um, gives people an opportunity to do is to just, just discover, run into something that they might not have done otherwise that, you know, where they say, oh, you're studying something that's similar to what I'm looking at, or you're, you know, you're approaching this problem from a different angle than what I'm doing. Either perhaps maybe we could work together or I could learn something from what you're doing. So one of the organizing principles of our joint conference is that we would like to challenge the parallel play that we see happening between the two conferences. And when I say parallel play, I'm borrowing directly from a, a medical sociologist named Peter Conrad who wrote a, a work some years ago comparing the way medical anthropology and medical sociology sort of danced around the same topics, but didn't really interact with one another. And I've been very inspired by that idea as I look at our scientific field of our community, that in fact, a lot of things that happen in networks sort of dance around one another, but don't necessarily directly interact. So we hope we provide um, happy collisions at the joint conference. And mentioned that the motivation to create one conference to rule them all has been going around for at least six years. So I asked her, what was the tipping point in this process, making these big clusters unite to one connected component? Well, I'll start from the beginning and then I'll tell you the tipping point. So, that, so I actually started my job at the IU Network Science Institute. One of my first meetings with our leadership, they said, we want to have a joint conference or a world congress where we bring our communities together. I communicated with the leaders of, at the time, of both INSNA and of the Network Science Society, and they weren't so interested. And so that put our running a joint conference on hold for a little bit, but we had already started asking the questions. So people were talking. And then you ask about the tipping point. My leadership was talking about the fact, well, if the two societies aren't interested in joining, we will host our own event and we'll probably make it a one-time event. And we will feature, you know, um, really interesting plenary speakers that speak across borders. And so we kind of had this idea, but we weren't doing anything with it, mainly because we were hosting NetSci 2017. At NetSci 2017, we actually invited Steve Borgatti. So he was the president of the International Network for Social Network Analysts that hosts the Sunbelt meeting. And that was one of our ways of sort of like providing a collision, if you will, even at that meeting. And then at the end of the meeting, he was talking to Riza D'Souza, who was at the time the president of the Network Science Society in the, in the like conference lobby area. 
And they were saying, you know, we really should talk about having this joint meeting. So news got back to me or I overheard it. I don't know if I, I can't remember if I was eavesdropping or if I just heard about it a little <laughs> bit later, but, um, but news got back to me and I said, oh, you know what, if you're interested in doing this, then we're interested in pursuing it. And at that point, I started talking to both sets of leadership, but it took us about a year more to figure out the details of how we would really do it. So yeah, so that that's, <laughs> you know, a, a work project that started in, in probably August of, of 2015 is now starting to come to an end for me. <laughs> so I've, <laughs> it's been a long, it's been a long time coming. So we got a connected component, but is it a giant connected component? I asked Anne if this union means that this is the biggest network conference ever held, and is it indeed a global event? I don't know if it's the biggest conference. Um, I'd love to say that it is. It is the biggest conference that I know of right now. So no one has told me about one that's larger. I'd have to ask a little bit more to find out. But you ask about whether or not this is um, international, and it is. I know that we have 17 time zones at least that are actually participating in this conference. And I know that because we ask. <laughs> So, so being an international conference, we wanted to allow for people to participate who might not have always, always been able to participate or who might not have been able to fly in and um, many countries. I think it was, it was 50 the last time I looked. But it's certainly the biggest when you count the presentations, right? I would think that would be true. At the moment, we have about 950 presentations in the main conference alone. So this is not taking into account anyone who's speaking at a satellite. It's a lot of papers. <laughs> it's a lot of talking um, over the main conference. Yeah. I shared with Anne my FOMO because of the huge number of presentations and the fact that many of them overlap. Well, we're going to have eight parallel sessions, <laughs> um, which is a lot, <laughs> yeah. um, which I think gets back to your, uh, your concern about not being able to see it all. One of the advantages of having a virtual conference is that everything will actually be recorded in the main conference. We're about to launch our conference app, the Whova app. Uh, which will be how people both interact with the sessions and each other through the conference. And it will be available to anyone within the conference platform um, for at least a month, if not longer. So if you are building an agenda that has you in six different places at once, um, you can go back to that session later and find that talk and review it. One of the nice things about being able to review in the system that we have is that you'll actually be able to review it, but you can put it on um, one and a quarter speed or one and a half speed <laughs> and get through it a little faster. <laughs> so this is something that I've heard um, from other people is they actually like the reviewing some of these things afterwards because they can really get through quite a bit and sort of sit down and listen to it and, and move through a lot of different things. So after she eased my concerns, I felt something was missing. Oh, yes, more speakers. So I asked her about plenary speakers. And just like salt and pepper, which are added to each meal, you can count the seconds till she name drops Barabashi and Daniel Bassett, who probably serve as condiments to every Netsai conference. So in terms of our plenary speakers, we also decided that we wanted to do something a little bit different in this conference. So our plenary discussions are actually discussions. So for our opening plenary, for instance, we have the two sort of founding figures in both of our communities. One is Russell Bernard and the other is Laszlo Barbashi. Um, and they will be moderated by one of our steering committee members, Bernice Pescasolito. So they're coming from their respective communities and have a lot of history behind their involvement in the field and what their role has been and how they, and how they see it. And they were also, interestingly, both very excited about having this conference. On Tuesday, we will have Mark Newman and Elizabeth Brooke, who actually work together at the University of Michigan, but 
are a physicist and a computational social scientist sociologist, and they have some really interesting research. They're going to talk about that and also their process of working along the lines. So we have another plenary of Danny Bassett, who is, uh, I can't even adequately tell you how many different uh, fields she's associated with, but I think the role that she's going to spend talking about is her work in neuroscience. She is going to talk to a social scientist who also does work in brain networks and social networks. So they're talking about the different ways in which the brain and uh, social networks can be understood and coming from very different traditions and experiences in in doing this. We have another panel that we will be announcing that's about COVID-19. And then we will have a final plenary talk that will be uh, also announced within the next couple of days that's going to involve decision-making in networks. Okay, so after the talks, how can we bring back the social to social network analysis? In other words, where do people meet in this conference? So here's Anne with a special tip to newcomers and keep in mind the power law and the long tail as she goes through it. We will have, a, um, we'll have an open social space um, that will be announced um, on certain times that we, that we hope people will you know, join if they wish um, to kind of make up for the loss of the coffee break, um, which is a tradition in both of these meetings, um, people getting a lot of chatting done during the coffee breaks. What I find the most sort of interesting about this and one fact that maybe um, many people don't realize about meetings in general is that not everyone who goes to those meetings has ever been to one of those meetings before. There's actually a lot of attrition between meetings. So there's a small core of people who will go to meetings for a particular conference over and over again. And then a lot of people who go to any particular meeting are new to that meeting. Think about a third of the people who've registered for this have never been to either a Sunbelt nor a NetSci. So for them, this is their first real interaction with both of these societies. So th- this is an opportunity. Lastly, I grilled Anne about her favorite presentation, and reluctantly, she admitted to having one. Um, I do have a favorite title from a, a work that was submitted by Jimmy Adams of the University of Colorado, Denver, Chris Markham of the uh, National Institutes of Health, and Molly Copeland of Michigan State. And it is, <clears throat> and you have to imagine this, um, put in brackets the following words, inappropriate title here. Colon, multiplex closure in adolescence, friendship, and romantic networks. So I like that they really played with the standard, um, you know, uh, first title, second title, and uh, inappropriate title here was really quite funny because they're dealing with romantic networks. So um, that's my favorite. That's my favorite title so far. But there have been there were some good ones for sure. Anything else? Last plug, it is not too late to register. It will remain open throughout the rest of the conference. So if you hear of something um, that you want to attend, sign up and register. And we'll be opening the Whova soon. So people will actually be able to see everything in a, a little bit more organized and visually pleasing format. So that's that. Cool. Thank you so much. All right. Well, have a great day. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. I guess there isn't a scientific field left untouched by the presentations. From COVID-19 through NLP, machine learning, political and social network analysis, organizational research, and exotic topics like a network analysis of religious movements in the Roman Empire, through Bitcoin research to the use of semantic networks to give economic forecasts. And have we mentioned COVID-19? Though there are many events, I tend to believe that the juicier parts seem to happen in the satellite events. Here is a short list of the satellite events I plan to attend. So the first is how social phenomena affect the structure of the network. Another is on networks and neurology. And of course, the community detection satellite, which is a topic I'm very partial to. 
In regard to the presentations, I plan to attend those that deal with community detection, and especially the one by Lito Peel, under the temporary name, Detectability of Hierarchical Communities in Networks, which received a warm recommendation from Mikel Koshia, a networks guru and a guest in an earlier episode of Netflix. Neurology is another topic I have the hearts for, so I plan to check out those presentations as well. But the presentation I'm most curious about is Javier Boldo's presentation about football tracking networks. The novel idea behind it is to build a network based on the ball's movement, player's position, and more. What does it mean? I have no idea. That's why I plan to attend it. So far, so good, but the catch here is the entry fee. The cost of registration ranges from tens of dollars per day to about $200 for the entire conference. But thanks to the Whova app that Anne mentioned before, one can cover more grounds in the conference. And now to our episode's keynote speaker. Professor Bauch Barzel runs the Complex System Lab in Bar Ilan University. One could think that publishing papers with Barabashi would be the climax of his career, but it seems for Bauch it's a non-linear climb, as can be seen in the itinerary of the upcoming Networks 2021 conference. His lab is scheduled to present nine presentations in the upcoming conference. In an alternate universe, Bauch should have been a podcaster, not just a physicist. But since I fear the competition, I distract him by interviewing him for this podcast. So Baruch, what's the rumpus? Hi. Hi, Asaf. I have to say that after this introduction, I really can't wait to hear what I have to say. <laughs> And so uh, I think so are the people in the conference, nine presentations. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you get lucky, you know. <laughs> And uh, I guess you're not stranger to the conference. In uh, 2017, you hosted one, right? Right, yes. So NetSci is my... family conference. I, I go every year. And in 2017, together with uh, Erez Shmueli from Tel Aviv University, we hosted it in uh, Hilton, Tel Aviv, right on the beach. And yeah, that was quite an experience. Cool. So we can't cover all of the presentations, but uh, let's start with the paper with the catching title, uh, Spatio-Temporal Signal Propagation in Complex Networks. As you know, I've read the paper in advance, and uh, this one reminded me of an older paper you published in uh, 2013 with uh, Barabashi, right? Uh, the Universality in Network Dynamics, I think it was. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, another nature physics, mm-hmm. yes. So uh, let, let's take a step back, because these two papers do have a, a similar theme. And, and I think the idea was this, that you know, for 20 years, we've been mapping the structure of complex networks. And I can't say that we know the structure of every network out there, but we have a pretty good grip on you know, the main structural characteristics. We know that almost all networks are small world. We know that they have community structure. Uh, we know that they're scale-free, or at least most people know that uh, networks are scale-free. So we have a pretty good understanding of the structural characteristics of networks. And what we were asking ourselves is, how do we leverage that to actually understand their dynamic behavior? And the first point is actually the bad news. I like to think of the network, this is a metaphor, but it's a helpful one. I like to think of the network as a static roadmap. And we all know that the same roadmap has very different traffic patterns at 8 a.m. in the morning and at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Now, as I said, this is just a silly metaphor, but it helps us understand that the same structure, the roadmap didn't change between 8 and 2 p.m., the same structure, the same network, can have very different dynamic behavior. So that was the question we were asking ourselves. How do you map 
everything we know about network structure, small worldness, scale freeness, into an understanding of the network's dynamic behavior. And the first thing you need to do is you need to add another layer of description. In a sense, you need to make life a little bit more complicated because the structural characteristics are very universal. You see social networks and uh, infrastructure networks and biological networks, they all have the same structural features. But you need to add an additional layer, which is what is the meaning of this structure? So imagine that you have two nodes connected to one another, node I and node J, and there's a link between them. You need to ask yourself, what does that link represent? Does that link between I and J mean that node I consumes node J, like in an ecological network? Or does that link mean that node I infects node J with a disease, like in a social network? Or maybe node I and node J chemically bind to each other, like in a protein interaction network. So similar structures can represent very different dynamic mechanisms. And the idea is that you need to add this layer of description. The same network can have very different behaviors if you introduce different dynamic mechanisms along the links. So when we look at this extra layer of the, you know, the dynamic mechanisms that take place between the nodes, the way to introduce that is by adding nonlinear dynamics. So this is a technical mathematical term. We can't get into it here in this podcast. But once you do that, you find that the same network with different nonlinear dynamics has very different behaviors. So to understand this, the first question you need to ask, and this is what we did in our 2013 paper. What do you want to predict? So you now you have a network, which is a structure. And on that structure, you embedded some dynamic mechanism. And now you need to ask questions about this. So what is it that you want to predict? Or in simple words, what do networks actually do? And what we argued in 2013 is that what networks do is that they spread information. Because whether it's viruses spreading on a social network or failures spreading in a power system, or chemical information spreading uh, between genetic components in a subcellular network, it's all about the spread of information. If you get the flu or you get COVID-19, it's information that's spread in the form of viruses from China to wherever you are. If you're sitting in the dark in a blackout, it's information that's spread in the form of loads through the infrastructure network until eventually some power component in your vicinity has failed. So whatever it is, it's all about the spread of information. Wouldn't it be more accurate to say they spread energy? Energy that pulses through the network. Because when uh, you gave the example of a blackout, isn't a blackout a lack of energy, a blockage in the network? Wouldn't it be more accurate? So this, this is a very good point. We actually, in, in the lab, these are all metaphors, of course, right? Because it's not information in you know, the classic sense that we think about information. It's not energy and it's not mass. It's some uh, signals or some disturbances in different locations in the network that occur in one node and then spread to all the other nodes. Uh, there's no one entity that covers both viruses, overloads, chemical signals, and so on. So we use a metaphor. Uh, information, I think, is a very generic metaphor for this, but I do agree that in, in the lab, we often use energy as a sort of synonym to that. And actually, as physicists, for us, it's, we also think about it as mass. There is mass traveling through the system. Mass is a very general term. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like, you know, you put particles in the middle of the room and they diffuse, and everyone knows how they do that because diffusion has been solved for 200 years now. 
but what happens when you put a disturbance, an overload, or uh, a viral outbreak in some location in the network? How will that spread? It spreads completely different than the way particles would spread in the room because the network has a very different structure than you know, classical particle physics. And the mechanisms of the spread are also very different from the classical mechanisms of particle interactions. So in a sense, if you want to think about it that way, yes, it's either energy or mass or information. All of these terms are kind of synonymous in this context. Cool. So in 2013, what we did is we said, okay, how would you measure that? You would say that you put the system at some state. Let's call that the fixed point or the stable state of the system. And around that state, you make a small perturbation on one of the nodes. You change the state of one of the nodes. Uh, that could represent, again, an overload in a power component or an outbreak of an epidemic somewhere in the system. And then you can ask yourself how all the other nodes will respond to this perturbation. Of course, it doesn't reach very far. It decays with distance. So you can ask how uh, rapidly it decays. And you can ask what's the impact of different nodes? What happens if you perturb a hub or you perturb a small node? And by doing that, you get a translation. You start from network structure. But then you go from who is connected to whom to who is affected by whom, to who is influenced by whom. So you, you go from the question of who is connected to the question is who is influenced or who is influencing. We all have an intuition, for example. We, we know that you know, in a scale-free network, you have hubs. And everyone right away says, oh, the hubs are the most influential nodes. Now, we know that the picture is way more complicated than that. But where is the challenge? The challenge is that we made an intellectual leap here. Being a hub is a structural characteristic. It is related to the static structure of the system. Being an influencer is a dynamic characteristic. It relates to the question of how much energy or influence or information you're able to spread in the system. And that's exactly the mapping that we want to do. It's not a clear-cut mapping from structure into dynamics. And with this, I think we should dive right into our uh, current contribution for our 2019 paper on the spatiotemporal signal propagation. Excellent name, by the way. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah. So if in 2013, the question was, what is the influence between node I and node J? In 2019, we asked ourselves, how does that influence behave in time? Because I can say that node J has responded to node I in some way. But another question is, how much time did it take Node J to respond to Node I? So if there is a perturbation somewhere in the network, you perturb a node, you make an overload somewhere, you introduce energy into one of the nodes, and it starts spreading through the network, what will be the patterns of this spread? Can we predict how much time it will take for the signals traveling through the network to cover all of the network? Can we predict how much time it will take a signal to travel between one node the source node, the, the source of the perturbation, to one target node, to the destination of that perturbation. Now, naively, you would say, oh, I know the answer. It's easy, right? You perturb a node. And then, first of all, the neighbors respond, and then the next neighbors, and then the next, next neighbors. That would be your intuition. That would be the way we picture diffusion or spread of signals in a network environment. But the truth is that the reality is way more complicated than that. Because once you also add the component of the dynamics, in mathematical terms, this means you're adding nonlinear dynamics to the system. In practical or realistic terms, this means you're relating to the actual mechanism by which the information spreads. You find that similar networks have profoundly 
different spreading patterns. So here is, for example, the first experiment we did. And when I say experiment, let me be honest about this. These are numerical experiments. These are numerical simulations. We took the exact same network, the scale-free network, and we perturbed the exact same node. So we were doing the exact same experiment six or seven times. The only difference is that the mechanism of the spread was different. In one network, the links represented social relationships, and the spread was viral spread of an epidemic. In another network, the link represented symbiotic relationships in an ecological system. So the links represented that one node pollinates another node. And then in a third network, and that will be my last example, in a third network, the links represented chemical reactions in a subcellular network. So it was the exact same structure, a scale-free network, but the links had a different meaning, different mechanisms of interaction. And then we perturbed the same node and tracked how much time it took the signal to travel to all other nodes in the system. And we found that the results were visibly different. They were extremely diverse. Sometimes it really worked the way your intuition says. First of all, the neighbors responded, then the next neighbors, and everything was clear. But in other times, we got very peculiar patterns of spread. For example, in biological dynamics, we sometimes found that the signal, first of all, propagates to the periphery and only then collapses closer to the source of the perturbation. This is a very counterintuitive form of spread. You would never guess that this is the way it would spread. And it indicates how difficult it is to translate network structure into actual dynamic patterns of flow. Right, so the first observation is this, and here's the bad news. The bad news, you have universality in network structure. That means that different networks from different domains have similar structures, but that doesn't translate to universality in network behavior. Here, the spatiotemporal, the diffusion of signals as they spread through the system is fundamentally different across similar networks. So structure is just not enough. And dynamics takes this universality and turns it into diversity. From a scientific point of view, diversity is bad news because then you have a very hard time to predict things. Universality means you have some recurring principles. You have some unifying, organizing principle that can take different systems and, you know, bunch them into one equation. So we were looking exactly for that, for the unifying principles. So I gave you the bad news. Dynamics is diverse and unpredictable, despite the fact that structure seems to be universal. So to get out of this mess, what we asked ourselves is the following question. Imagine that you take a node and you detach it from the rest of the network. So there's no network now. There's just one node. And it has an incoming signal from its direct neighbor. So the signal comes and hits that node, and that node responds to that signal. The response is not instantaneous. It takes time for a node to change its state. So the, the question we were asking ourselves then is, how much time will it take a node to respond to a directly incoming signal? Some nodes are very slow. It takes a lot of time until they respond. Other nodes might be very fast. They respond right away and change their state. And what we've shown is that the response time actually scales with that node's degree. Now, if that scaling is positive, for example, say that response time equals the degree to the power two. That means that hubs have a much longer response time than small nodes. In that sense, if you are, say, Asaf, 10 times more connected than I am, if that exponent is two, it means you're 100 times slower than I am. But then on the other hand, in other cases, if that exponent is negative, we get 
a reverse picture. Now the hubs become the freeways. They become very, very fast because response time scales negatively with degree. And then, of course, there's another class where this exponent is exactly equal to zero. You don't need to rig anything for the exponent to equal zero. It's not that we balance or fine-tune the parameters. This is an intrinsic characteristic of certain dynamic mechanisms. And when that exponent is zero, it means that the hubs and the small nodes have all similar response times, the typical response time of the system. Notice, this is interesting. It's a scale-free network. It's extremely heterogeneous. But in terms of its dynamic behavior, all nodes pretty much behave the same. So this number, this exponent that I just mentioned, is the one number you need to know in order to fully characterize the propagation patterns of signal in the network. So let's go back to our metaphor. Imagine that your network is a roadmap and that the signals that propagate from node between the nodes, the information that travels along the network, is like the cars, that they travel from one point to another. And if this exponent is positive, that means that the high degree nodes are extremely slow. They are the traffic jams. They are the bottlenecks of the system. And then signals will travel way faster if they go along the peripheral pathways, the ones that are avoiding the hubs and only traverse through small nodes. But then on the exact same roadmap, the exact same network, you change the dynamics. You go from epidemic spreading to ecological dynamics, or you go from neuronal dynamics to subcellular uh, genetic regulatory dynamics. So you'd have the same structure, but now you change the dynamics. And when you change the dynamics, the exponent also changes. And now the hubs, they change role. When the exponent was positive, the hubs were the bottlenecks. They were the traffic jams. If now you change your dynamics and the exponent is negative, suddenly the hubs are the most rapid responders. Now the hubs behave as the freeways. They are the ones that allow signals to travel as fast as you want through the system. So the same network will feature very different propagation patterns. In the first system, the propagation patterns will prefer the peripheral pathways. In the second system, the propagation patterns will prefer the hub-enriched pathways. Same network, completely different traffic patterns, and it all boils down to this one number, this exponent, that comes from the dynamic mechanisms. That's amazing, and it sounds very unintuitive. Naturally, you think that the hubs would be uh, the spreaders of the information in every dynamic. And what you're saying is that it depends on the spreading model that the exponent uh, represents. Precisely. Precisely. And that's exact, that was exactly our next step. Then we said, okay, now this is very microscopic. It talks about a specific node and that node's response time. But now let's go back to the macroscopic picture, the overview of the signal propagation patterns. And we know that many networks have a fat tail degree distribution. Many networks are scale-free, so they have a coexistence of very highly connected nodes and very small nodes. And from a structural perspective, what the hubs do is that they really shorten the pathways. The hubs bind together the network and make the network ultra-small. It has very, very short pathways. But how does that translate into dynamics? Well, if the exponent is positive, then the hubs... While they shorten the structural pathways, they actually create very big traffic jams for information propagation. They're shock absorbers. They don't let information propagate very easily. And therefore, in those kind of dynamics, 
While a scale-free network has an ultra-small world structure, it has an extremely large world propagation pattern in the sense that it takes very large uh, amounts of time for signals to propagate. So we call these networks, they're ultra-small, but at the same time, they're ultra-slow. Then at the other end of the spectrum, when this exponent is negative, the hops really do expedite the spread of signals. They are the fastest responders. They expedite the spread of signals, and the system is scale-free. It is ultra-small, and it is also ultra-fast. And by ultra-fast, we mean something which is very counterintuitive. In those systems, the amount of time it would take a signal to spread and cover the entire network does not scale with the size of the system. So you have networks with 10 nodes, 100 nodes, 1,000 nodes, or 10,000 nodes, and the signals cover them at roughly the same amount of time. And that is because the hubs, they're the main connectors of the network, they respond so rapidly that the signals just don't take time to spread through the entire network. Of course, in the middle, there's a third class. And the third class is when this exponent is zero. When this exponent is zero, it doesn't matter if you're a hub or a small node. Every node responds roughly at the same time. And then what mediates the spread of signals is our good old classic intuition. It's the pathways. First of all, your neighbors, then your second neighbors, then your third neighbors. And here's the good news. The diversity in network dynamics actually can be boxed into separate groups or separate universality classes Within each of these classes, the networks observe a similar behavior. So we have three classes of propagation, the ultra-slow propagation, the ultra-fast propagation, and the classic intuitive propagation, where degree distribution just doesn't matter, and it all depends on the shells, your neighbors, your next neighbors, your next next neighbors, just like we, uh, we would have guessed initially. When you talked about hubs as uh, buffers, mm-hmm. it, it reminded me of a uh, Dunbar number. Dunbar suggested that there's a limit to maintaining strong ties because of the attention span of a human being or an ape in his case. <laughs> no, not his case, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'll edit it out. But <laughs> so if the signal or the propagation demands high energy of the node, I guess that hubs would serve as bumpers because the hub doesn't have uh, enough energy to sustain all its connections. Uh, I think your intuition is, is perfect and, and the connection to Dunbar is actually fascinating because you would think really intuitively that if you, have, you want to spread a rumor or some piece of information, you go to that one person in the room that has a thousand friends and you whisper on their ear and they will help you spread the rumor to all the other friends. But what you're forgetting is that you're not the only ones whispering on their ear. There are 999 other people that are also demanding their attention. And that is precisely the reason that sometimes the hubs, while well-connected, are not very good in contributing to the spread of information. Sometimes they're very slow. Sometimes they behave as shock absorbers or as bottlenecks. And they are not the actual spreaders. And this point, I think, leads to a very fundamental notion. We started by asking... What do networks do? And we said what networks do is that they spread information. And therefore, if you want to understand the behavior of a network, ask what are the patterns of spread of information that this network generates? And now we found that the role of scale freeness is not so trivial. 
right? Because we can ask ourselves, why do you need such an elaborate network? Why do networks need to be scale-free, so diverse and so heterogeneous? You can say they just are, but the, you know, the ubiquity of the phenomena shows that it has some advantages. And the advantages is that scale-freeness has a profound impact on the way information spreads. But the impact shows us that sometimes networks are not really interested in spreading information. So if you talk about the ultra-fast networks, it seems that there, what the scale-freeness does is it really expedites the spread of information. It helps you spread information faster. But this same characteristic, being a scale-free network, can also, under different dynamic mechanisms, make you ultra-slow. Such systems, I would argue, are actually systems where the role of the network is not to spread information, but to buffer information. And sometimes, that's exactly what you would want. Can you give me an example? So, for example, uh, you know, we, we analyze the spreading behavior in a metabolic uh, network. And what, what does a metabolic network do? It, it takes some input, like glucose or sugar, and then through a set of very elaborate chemical reactions, it produces energy, say ATP. And what we measured is how rapidly or how efficiently the signal spreads between perturbations to glucose to the output ATP. And we found that sometimes some of the nodes have a very positive contribution to the spread. They help mediate that spread and, and help generate a response in ATP from a signal, a perturbation in the glucose. But some of the network components here actually had a negative impact. They delayed the response. They actually uh, mitigated the spread of the information. And so the net spread of information from glucose to ATP was eventually around zero. In the beginning, we thought this can't be right. But then we were thinking about it again and said, wait a second, isn't this exactly what metabolism is about? Metabolism is a regulatory process. You see, you get your glucose intake in a very fluctuative manner. You go out in the morning, you manage to hunt an antelope, now you have food for the day, and then you go a week without getting any intake of food. So in nature, the intake is very fluctuative. It's very perturbative. The whole role of the, of the metabolic network is that these perturbations do not affect your energy output. So glucose is constantly being perturbed. The intake is constantly changing. But the output, the output you want to be very, very stable. So you don't want the final product that your network is uh, generating, in this case, to respond to perturbations in the input. And the way to do that is to have a network that doesn't allow an efficient spread of information, but does exactly the opposite. It buffers the spread of information. By having components that respond very slowly, as we said, they're shock absorbers. They actually stabilize and buffer the spread of information, not allowing perturbations in one node to spread and impact the crucial uh, output in another node. So it's not a bug, it's a feature. Exactly. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's a feature. You know, it reminds me of uh, Lada Adamic's paper, basing it on uh, Facebook's data, about the spreading of memes versus the spreading of uh, challenges on Facebook. It sounds exactly like uh, the models you uh, mentioned, because what they found was that memes spread through hubs and the challenges, they used the ice bucket challenge. Mm -hmm. It was a campaign for a ALS, I think. You needed to... Uh, you need to pour an ice bucket over your head. 
Exactly. And the memes spread it through the hubs, but the ice bucket challenge actually bypassed the hubs. And my understanding of the paper was that because the meme campaign didn't require any energy from the hubs, only to pass it forward, it spread through the hubs. And the ice bucket challenge required the hubs to spend a lot of energy. And they served, as you said, maybe they served as buffers. And that's why the challenge bypassed the hubs. So it's two uh, spreading models on the same network topology. Wow, I, I have to run read that paper because it seems very closely related to what we show. Uh, yes, this is precisely the phenomenon. Yeah, so you have uh, the same network. It's a social network, whatever it is. It's Facebook or Twitter or whatever social network. Oh, Facebook, of course, it's not Adamic, right? Uh, so you have the same social network. But on that social network, you have very distinct spreading patterns. And I think the mechanism is exactly what you're describing here. Uh, sometimes the hubs are the mediators of the spread because the fact that you have a thousand other friends doesn't impact your ability to just press forward on a meme without giving any attention to it. And sometimes, yes, the hubs are the shock absorbers of the spread and the spread has to go through peripheral nodes that have more time to invest in the energy demands of pouring ice over their head. Uh, I just add to that, that, you know, in terms of our theory, what this means, these distinct propagation patterns, it's not a new ones. That is something which is very strongly embedded in the nodes, very strongly embedded in your system. Not something you can just change by perturbing the environmental conditions. Uh, human beings can infect one another, but they cannot bind chemically. Proteins can bind chemically, but they cannot infect one another. So the value of the exponent and the resulting patterns of propagation are very deeply embedded in the physics of the system. You cannot change them by just you know, heating it up, adding sugar, or changing some of the environmental parameters. And this makes Lada the mix finding even more fascinating because it would suggest, considering you believe our theories, it would suggest that the difference she detected between the spread of memes and the spread of challenges is not just because challenges are harder. That would be parameter change. It's because challenges spread through a different mechanism. The influence between people is follows a different mechanism than uh, memes. Whoa, that's heavy. Yeah, I, I would guess something along the way that, you know, a challenge spreads by conviction. Person A convinces person B, and then person B might do the challenge. Memes do not necessarily spread that way. They don't need to convince you. They need to act on, you know, on some other social incentive. But that's already me not being a mathematician. That's me being a psychologist. So <laughs> put, put a grain of salt on my interpretation here. Uh, Baruch, unintuitive and interesting as usual. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Asaf. See you next time. Sure. Go register. <laughs> Bye-bye. Let's do a short recap. By using different spreading models on the same network's topology, Baruch managed to show that different patterns evolve from different models, although the topology stayed the same. For those interested in following the field of networks in general and the conference in particular, you're welcome to follow NetFreaksP on Twitter. Did you enjoy and want to share? Have you suffered and you don't want to suffer alone? Tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Twitter or like our Facebook page. If you're from Israel, rate us on Podcasts of Israel. The music is courtesy of Compile Band. Check them out. See you in the next episode of Netflix. Netflix.